Hi, I'm Nam Kiwanuka. Join us and be part of the conversation on The Thread, streaming on TVO.org, The Thread with Nam on YouTube and other TVO platforms, and be sure to follow us on Instagram at TVO The Thread. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, the Ontario government is expanding the number of private clinics allowed to perform surgeries and diagnostic procedures, but there's a bit of a catch. The leader of the Green Party wants an audit over the government's plans to shutter some service Ontario locations. And the Hazel McCallion LRT will expand into Brampton's downtown, fulfilling the original vision of the line and causing some to ask why the government changed its mind for a second time on this transit project. And your column, my column, focuses on an Ontario court charter challenge and what it could mean for Canada's elections. And I'll focus on the four-time Ontario Liberal leader and legend Robert Nixon, who at the age of 95 is still telling great stories. It's Tuesday, January 23rd, 2024. So let's get to it. Well, you and I are sitting here in our ties and very fancy clothing because we're about to leave after recording this podcast to go to Roma. Yes. Not not the city in Italy. (laughs) Rural Ontario Municipal Association. Yes, indeed. They are gathered uh, here in Toronto and uh, TVO uh, uh, has for a few years now done uh, played a role there. Uh, last year, I was supposed to do the Minister's Forum, uh, colloquially known as the Bear Pit, where Cabinet is uh, uh, peppered with questions from uh, municipal delegates. But I got COVID and you stepped in in the last minute. I remember that. That's right. You got COVID. That's why we did that. Yes. Okay. So uh, I... You know, out of an abundance of caution, I tested this morning and I am clear and fine. You look fine to me. uh, Yeah, well, you know, and uh, so looking forward to uh, seeing the the, uh, proceedings later today. Excellent. Well, before we dive into this week's three topics, we wanted to make a correction from last week's episode. I gave some incorrect information in a promo for TVO's Ultimate Choice podcast about medical assistance in dying or MAID. What I should have said was that MAID accounted for more than 4% of all deaths in Canada in 2022. The point being, MAID is becoming an increasingly popular option among those confronted with painful or miserable end-of-life circumstances, so we are now happy to correct the record. Let's get to the mailbag. Uh, We enjoy getting your feedback at onpolitics at tvo.org. This week, we have this question from ex-user Alessandro in Toronto, who asks, what's the latest update on reform of municipal waste collection? I think Toronto was supposed to act as a pilot zone for implementing a producer responsibility system. Did this happen, and what's happening next? Well... This obviously is a McGrath question. This is right up your alley. Go ahead, partner. It really, really is. I, I swear <laughs> I'm not ghostwriting these. Um, Alessandro is right that there are big changes coming to municipal waste collection, specifically the Blue Bin program that was introduced in Ontario uh, decades ago. Uh, municipalities have maintained for years now that they bear more than their fair share of the cost of actually uh, collecting and sorting uh, Blue Bin recycling. And Queen's Park is finally doing something about it. Uh, for once, we can actually say there's actually some uh, cross-party agreement to thank for it. The Liberals introduced the basic uh, legal framework for what's uh, going on under Kathleen Wynne's government, and it's actually one of the few things I can think of that the Tories have continued without major revisions. Uh, Under Doug Ford, the province is moving to what's called producer responsibility, where manufacturers and retailers are going to bear the costs of recycling the waste they create. I remember when the Blue Box program came in. It was uh, David Peterson's government in the mid-'80s that did it. Uh, Jim Bradley, the environment minister, was the first recycling program 
Blue Box program in all of North America. So that was a long time ago. You're right. But that program's not going anywhere. Is that correct? For now, no. People will still put their blue bins out for curbside recycling. Uh, in the near term, the expectation is that the cost of these programs will come from the private sector and not property taxes. Uh, that shift is happening right now. Uh, Alessandro mentioned Toronto um, acting as a, as a pilot. Uh, cities are moving into the program at, at different rates. Um, it is going to continue over the next few years as municipalities all over the province get to the end of their existing waste collection contracts and shift over to the new system. In theory, this should all be invisible to folks putting their recycling out. I love the way you said in theory. Okay, that's the theory. In practice, what? Uh, in practice, it is complicated. Uh, our listeners are probably aware that not all municipalities allow the same things to be put in the blue bin. Uh, one type of plastic is okay to recycle in Toronto, but not Markham, for example. The province wants to harmonize that province-wide. And then there's the question of what to do about beverage containers specifically. Uh, for non-alcoholic beverages, Ontario has a, a pretty dismal record on actually recycling cans and bottles. Hmm. Now, you said non-alcoholic beverages there, and I think that's important because for alcohol... The beer store runs a pretty successful recycling program. I think upwards of, uh, well, it's certainly at least 80% of cans and bottles get recycled there. That's right. and But that's in comparison to less than half of the non-alcoholic beverage containers. Uh, the key difference is that in Ontario, beer, wine, and other alcohol containers are part of a deposit return program. You pay 10 or 20 cents per can or bottle, and the beer store gives it back to you when you bring in your empties. Last summer, the government announced that it was exploring a deposit return scheme for non-alcoholic beverages and has... <laughs> classic sort of government, uh, they, they have struck a working group. Mm -hmm. They are uh, soliciting feedback. They have not made a final decision one way or another on that, uh, but a statement from the Environment Minister's office says they will consider all feedback and try to ensure a smooth transition for the Blue Bin program. Thanks for your question, Alessandro. Again, if you'd like to ask about content on the show, please email us at onpolitics at tvo.org. Now, on to issue one. Last year, the government of Ontario announced it would be expanding the role of private health clinics in the delivery of surgical procedures, such as hip and knee replacement surgery, among others. And now the province will expand this option to more clinics across the province. Doug Ford and Sylvia Jones are allowing corporate greed to erode our health care system at the same time that their indifference, inaction and incompetence have made it more vulnerable than ever before. We need to take our health care system from neglected to protect it. That was Adil Shamji, the MPP for Don Valley East, who's both the health critic for the Liberals and a medical doctor before he got into politics. The provincial government has pitched this plan as a way to expand capacity in Ontario's health care system because the wait times for some surgeries are getting too long. Now, as I ask you what the feedback is to this latest development, JMM, let me do what I always do, and that is remind everyone... Uh, when we discuss this topic, my wife is a health policy consultant. She works on this issue, so we put that out there in the interests of full disclosure. Okay, having said that, what's the feedback like on this latest move? The traditional criticism of any kind of expansion of private health care in the uh, overall public system that we have is that it could lead to longer wait times in public hospitals as uh, health care workers, whether they be doctors or nurses or, or others, uh, are uh, potentially lured out of the public system by uh, potentially higher uh, compensation that could be offered at private clinics. Uh, public health care advocates also worry about uh, 
uh, upselling, i.e. you go into a private clinic uh, for a, some relatively straightforward and simple procedure uh, only to be, you know, asked in the consultation phase, you know, well, you know, <laughs> while we're looking at this, do you also want to uh, think about having X, Y, or Z procedure uh, covered? And those uh, additional services may or may not be covered by OHIP. And these kinds of situations can be uh, very intense for people and, and people aren't necessarily um, emotionally or in some case sort of uh, equipped with the life experience to know when uh, it's time for them to say no and when it's time to end a conversation like that. Uh, critics, of course, also concerned about transparency. Uh, we have public health information from our hospitals, but uh, would we be able to wrest info from uh, private health clinics uh, to ensure that they are billing patients fairly? Uh, this is a, a live issue right now in Ontario, I would say, um, on the, the issue of long-term care. The patient ombudsman, the office that the Liberal government created to uh, take care of, uh, to, to serve the same function in the healthcare system that the uh, Ontario ombudsman serves and most of the rest of government um, has had to go to court to try and investigate long-term care homes. But multiple courts have said that actually uh, that, that office does not have the power to do so because of some specific legal issues. Uh, that's the kind of thing that uh, would be, I think, would concern a lot of uh, public health care advocates. This is, of course, a battle at the end of the day for public opinion uh, between the government and what it wants to do and critics who want to stop what the government wants to do. So let's just focus on that for a second. In terms of that battle for public opinion, those opposing this plan certainly seem to have the upper hand at the moment. So in the interest of fairness, let's also put the government's position on the record here. What is the argument they are presenting in favor of putting more publicly insured health care services into privately owned health care settings? Well, the big benefit would be that uh, this could keep some procedures from having to take place in hospitals at all and uh, could, at least in theory, uh, put more access to these kinds of uh, medical interventions closer to where people live in their communities. You know, hospitals are regrettably, like, actually not the safest place for the general population. People uh, frequently get, you know, hospital-acquired uh, infections. It's just the reality of uh, any uh, healthcare setting. Um, lots of people, if they don't have to go to a large full-service hospital, they would reasonably or might reasonably choose not to. Um, the you know it could be preferable for a lot of uh, reasons for them to, to be treated in, in a smaller, more specialized setting. Proponents also say uh, there is, uh, if there is a concern about uh, medical professionals abandoning hospitals for private clinics, uh, you could have private clinics that uh, require their staff to also work at the local hospital. You can uh, That's one of the things that healthcare professionals can do, of course. They can uh, split their time between uh, a private clinic and a, uh, a public hospital, and uh, that is a system that uh, there is at least one example of in Windsor, Ontario. Um, you know, those kinds of partnerships could ensure that uh, a private clinic doesn't necessarily, um, uh, <laughs> I want to say the word steal, poach maybe, uh, uh, take the talent exclusively out of the public system. There was one additional reform announced by the health minister that's designed to allay the concerns of some critics. There is a group in this country called Accreditation Canada. And basically, they inspect hospitals to ensure that the hospitals are adhering to regulations and providing good service, etc. The government is proposing to have Accreditation Canada also take responsibility for private clinics to give the public that extra assurance that good work is happening in these clinics. 
Uh, one final note, at the same press conference last week, Adil Shamji called for the Auditor General to investigate the province's use of temporary nursing agencies. Uh, we've discussed these before on the podcast. Uh, these are agencies that hospitals rely on uh, effectively as a provider of, of, of temporary labor, but nurses can be paid almost double what on-staff nurses might be paid uh, at a hospital. Uh, it's worth remembering that uh, hospital work for nurses can be much tougher than at a private clinic. Uh, at a hospital, nurses' schedules are changed quite frequently. Uh, some weeks you work days, other weeks you're on the overnight shift. Um, a lot of nurses prefer the predictability of working days only or on simpler procedures, which is part of the, uh, let's call it the non-financial uh, uh, attraction of working in a private clinic. Right. Healthcare, of course, Ontario's biggest line item in its budget, $81 billion is what we'll spend this year in the province of Ontario on healthcare. So, of course, we'll definitely keep an eye on where this push for more private clinics goes from here. And now, on to issue two. Last week, Ontario's Green Party leader, Mike Schreiner, called for an audit of the recent decision to open Service Ontario kiosks at some Staples locations and two Walmart ones, while closing existing ones. Okay, JMM, what's the scoop here? So this is an, uh, a change in the way that Service Ontario is uh, delivering uh, to uh, Ontario residents. Uh, basically, at the moment, the, the vast majority of Service Ontario locations are, uh, if not owned, then rented by uh, the government, and they are staffed by uh, government employees. And uh, the government is instead proposing to to close some of those locations and uh, co-locate them within uh, mostly Staples stores, but also uh, apparently some some Walmarts as well. And this isn't entirely new. Uh, I have uh, gone to a Service Ontario location at a Canadian Tire to get my health card renewed. Um, I did that a few years ago, and it was it was in that sort of post-COVID period. And uh, you know, it was fine. <laughs> I, 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 I know that there, there are some serious issues about this question that I do want to get to. But, you know, I, I, I want to sort of preface this by saying that I, I have actually had some sort of direct experience with this kind of interaction. And it was more or less the same kind of process that I've had at any other uh, Service Ontario location. Uh, that said, there are concerns, of course. Um, one of the big ones uh, I, that I'm particularly sympathetic to is it does look like uh, government workers are going to uh, lose their jobs and be able to reapply for new positions as employees of Staples. Um, you know, I, I, I'm just, I, I, I don't love the sight of workers having to reapply for their existing current jobs uh, in any case. I wrote something for TVO.org about this last week, uh, talking about my concerns about this. You know, one of the things that I, I really want to hammer home is that Service Ontario kind of works miraculously well when you compare it to uh, other things. And, and in my column, I talk about the federal passport office, which, I mean, my God, if I could go the rest of my life without ever having to renew my passport, I mean, I, I would consider that a blessing. Whereas Service Ontario is generally, I've, I've had very efficient, quick service there. Um, and, uh, you know, my concern is that basically... Uh, as much as I see there's uh, uh, some logic, some reason behind what the government is doing, um, I also worry that they're going to break something that uh, works really, really well. And if they d do that, I mean, there are going to be real consequences because we're talking about birth certificates. We're talking about health cards. We're talking about driver's licenses. We're talking about vital documents that uh, people in Ontario uh, literally rely on to access life and death services. Having said that, and I'm just asking the question here, I'm not expressing a view, I presume that the Service Ontario jobs, when they are done by government-owned and operated Service Ontario locations, 
are unionized public sector jobs. And then when Service Ontario was located in a Canadian Tire or in a Walmart or in a Staples, those aren't Ontario Public Service Employees Union unionized jobs. And is that part of the issue here for the employees in this case. Well, I mean, that I think would be a fair one. And, and from the government's perspective, they they say that, you know, this is uh, going to save the government a million dollars a year. You don't really have to be overly cynical to ask where exactly that million dollars in savings is going to come from. Is it going to come from uh, decreased rental and, you know, uh, property costs, or is it going to come from decreased payroll? Mind you, I remember, how long ago was it? I mean, probably 25, almost 30 years ago, having a discussion with a cabinet minister in the Mike Harris government at the time. And he was saying, do we really need to be in the business of renewing people's driver's licenses? I mean, isn't this something that the private sector could just as easily do and probably for less money? So here we are 25 years later and seems we're getting around to it. Seems that way. Now, as we mentioned, Mike Schreiner, the leader of the Greens, is calling for an audit on all of this. Other opposition leaders have signaled their support in finding out the details of the deal. What are they all hoping to learn here? Well, the primary thing to say here is that I mentioned the million dollars in savings, but uh, the government hasn't uh, made public any kind of uh, business case assessment or analysis to uh, demonstrate to the public their claim that uh, they will save a million dollars a year. Schreiner is asking the Auditor General to conduct a value for money audit on this deal. This is kind of almost a a, a pure case of what the Auditor General is actually, uh, as much as we've talked before on this podcast about allegations of mission creep, you know, figuring out whether money is being wisely spent is sort of the core uh, of the Auditor General's mission. And uh, this is one of those cases where the Auditor General has a a great deal of power to, to figure out, you know, whether this will be money well spent. Um, There's also the issue that uh, at least for now, this has been a sole-sourced contract. Staples seems to have not had to compete for this um, uh, deal. The government says that's because this is really just a pilot that they are testing out. Presumably, if it were uh, pushed into a larger process, that that might have to be competitive. But uh, that's a, a decision for the future. Um, you know, again, just to go back to this million-dollar figure, uh, you know, one of the concerns here is that. I mean, a million dollars for the provincial government is just not a lot of money. I I mean, uh, we joke here about a million dollars here, a million dollars there. Pretty soon you're talking real money. But this is a rounding error on a rounding error for uh, the government of Ontario's budget. So uh, real question of of why you would want to make such a a substantial change to uh, the way people interface with the, the, the provincial government directly for relatively marginal savings. And the answer is because this is the progressive conservative government (laughs) and progressive conservative governments tend to want to keep government smaller. Yes. And and in their defense, I mean, you know, there was that that bit of homespun wisdom of, you know, you you mind the pennies and the dollars take care of themselves. Right. And and I think you can see that uh, certainly I think the finance minister, Peter Bethlenfalvy, very much believes that like there's no such thing as a a, a sum that is too small to worry about. Mm hmm. Anyway, on to issue three. The Hazel McCallion line began its life under the previous Ontario government and has since seen a lot of changes. It started as a north-south LRT up and down here Ontario Street in Mississauga, going into Brampton's downtown core. But then the current government said that's too expensive and opted to downsize the line. But last week, we heard that the line would go back to its original plan and will run from Port Credit, loop around in Mississauga and terminate in Brampton's downtown core after all. Okay, John Michael, why the change? 
Well, let's lay out a bit of the uh, history of this project. Before it was called the Hazel Macallion Line, it was called the Huron-Ontario Line. Um, in 2015, Brampton City Council voted against the line going through its downtown core. Uh, we should note that uh, City Council was listening to the uh, objections of many locals, including uh, a gentleman you uh, are familiar with, uh, Steve. The, the former I think premier. his name was Bill Davis. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, in 2019, Metrolinks announced it was going to scrap the Mississauga downtown loop, which would eliminate three stops. Uh, then in 2022, uh, Premier Ford announced that the loop was back in the plan. And now the Ford government has given Metrolinks a deadline of February 5th for a business case on the finalized line. We note with interest that one of the things that's different since the government announced a reduction to the McCallion LRT is that the Ontario Liberal leader is now the former mayor of Mississauga. That's Bonnie Crombie, whose birthday, I think, is on February 5th. So as these things all come together, there's another coincidence. There's some candles to blow out. Indeed. (laughs) Do we think the province went back to the original design because they're concerned about losing popularity in Peel Region, where last time out they won all six seats, and even today after one member getting turf from caucus and cabinet and sitting as an independent, they've still got five of the six seats in Peel Region. So I hope this isn't just politically driven decision because this is the right thing for the the growth of the city of Mississauga. And it was a commitment that had been made by the government. Let's hope that they're doing the right thing for the right reasons, not that it's a political maneuver. That was former Mississauga mayor, now Ontario Liberal leader, Bonnie Crombie, at a press conference last week. I mean, isn't everything at Queen's Park's politics at the end of the day? <laughs> well, yes, that's true. But as you heard, Crombie agrees with this latest move by the province to reinstate the original plan. And the press gallery was doing its best. I got to hand it to them. They asked the question 25 different ways, <laughs> trying to get her to uh, go on the record and say, yeah, the premier's just playing politics here. But uh, in fact, she said, this is... Um, This is a good decision by the government. She wasn't going to speculate as to motive, but she was pleased to take the victory. Um, The line is expected to open this fall. We will see if that happens. Brampton is hoping the LRT line in its downtown will be underground, so that might add some complications to the design. Sometimes, as has been the case with the Eglinton Crosstown LRT, which is right near this studio and um, still isn't going. Yeah. These things go way over budget and are very much delayed. So let's get your bet on whether we're going to see a fall opening to this thing, actually. I mean, as much as it uh, pains me to say this, because I I don't wish any... uh, ill tidings on the people of Peel Region. If this uh, LRT opens on time, I, I don't know, we should promise our listeners something, like we'll do a, a segment on which Star Trek film is our favorite or something. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like something we do anyway, regardless of whether this thing's on I mean, time or on budget. Us, anyway. I, I'm happy to do a, a special bonus episode. <laughs> right on, man, right on. Okay, up next, your column, my column. Time now for our regular feature, Your Column, My Column, in which JMM and I reminisce about columns we wrote for TVO.org over the past week. John Michael, what have you got for us? I wrote last week about an Ontario court decision that basically changed absolutely nothing about Canadian (laughs) politics. So it's sort of anti-news in that sense. Um, A handful of non-governmental organizations had challenged Canada's first-past-the-post system of elections, arguing that it violates people's charter rights to uh, effective fair voting, as uh, guaranteed in Section 3 of the Charter, and uh, 
substantive equality rights. Uh, Justice Edward Morgan issued a decision in November of last year saying, uh, in essence, nice try, but no luck. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, he conceded that there are substantial arguments that uh, proportional representation uh, would in some ways be fairer than uh, uh, first past the post or more formally, uh, we call it a single member plurality system. He did accept a lot of those arguments, but basically said, uh, in agreement with both the government and uh, uh, critical interveners, uh, who said essentially you can't use the charter to force parliament and the provinces to adopt proportional representation. Mm -hmm. uh, a fun little case, but as yet it has changed nothing. I will say that um, the, the NGOs who launched this uh, appeal, uh, they are appealing it to the Ontario Court of Appeal. Um, I, I, it seems likely whatever happens at the Court of Appeal, they will, either side is likely to try and get it to the Supreme Court as well. And then you get to write another column saying, no news here, nothing new happened, but they're still <laughs> at it. You know, but my editor might actually object if the, if literally nothing changes. The, uh, yeah. Um, how about yourself, Steve? Well, let me state for the record here, you are not the only on-poly nerd I hang out with. Just so you know, I don't want you to feel jilted or, you know, put upon I'm, or anything I'm scandalized. like that. No, <laughs> don't be scandalized. I want you to know there are there is a small other group of on poly nerds that I hang out with. And probably a couple of times a year, we take what you might call the pilgrimage west to just west of Hamilton to Brant County to the city of Paris, Ontario. It might be a town, actually. I'm not sure. I should look that up anyway. And in Paris, Ontario lives the former four-time leader of the Ontario Liberal Party. His name is Robert Nixon. He's 95 years old, and he's still a fantastic storyteller. And, you know, those of us who go to these things, Dave Levac, the former speaker of the Ontario legislature, is one of them. Uh, he was also a former MPP for Brandt. Uh, this past, what was it, I guess a week and a half ago, um, we had two of Mr. Nixon's grandchildren who joined us as well. And and uh, anyway, it's just, it's a fun time. We love hearing these stories. Uh, the guy's had an amazing life, and he's 95 and a half, and he's still, I mean, he hasn't lost an inch off his fastball. He's still really, really good. Loves Some of the stories I told in the column that I wrote on the website, a lot of the stories I cannot tell on the website because they are, yes, even 95-year-olds tell uh, very blue tales uh, from time to time. <laughs> but uh, it was really good stuff, and, and I'll tell you what, uh, every time I leave, I kind of silently cross my fingers and say a little prayer that I hope that isn't the last time we get to have one of these visits. Because at 95 and a half, you just never know. Yeah. And and the, that is such a, um, a fascinating uh, generation of uh, Ontario political leaders. In particular, I would say uh, people who weren't part of uh, the big blue machine. And, you know, like, uh, Mr. Nixon spent his entire time in opposition, and uh, that's well, except for the five years he got into government as treasurer. Uh, yes, sorry, my yeah. my, my apologies. Overwhelmingly, uh, in as, as leader, he was yes. uh, in, in opposition. Yes, um, and uh, yeah, I, I just I think uh, that's such a uh, an interesting uh, part of Ontario history. And if you uh, weren't part of that forty year Tory dynasty, uh, you have a very different perspective on. Mm. what that was like. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll tell one little story here that I didn't get into the column because it is profane. And Matthew may have to beat me here. But um, we were talking about the 1990 election, which, as you know, the liberals lost to Bob Ray and the NDP. And Bob Nixon, who, you know, his father held the seat before him. His father held the seat from 1919 to 1961. Then Mr. Nixon got in there with uh, his father died. That's how he got the job. His father died. Seat opened up. He ran there. And he held the seat from 19, what was it, January of 1962 until 1991, 
when he stepped aside. But he almost lost his seat in 1990, shockingly, because, and this is according to some of his campaign people I talked to, he would get into arguments with constituents on the hustings and keep <laughs> telling them to F off. And they eventually figured that the only way he was going to win that seat is if they took him off the campaign trail so he couldn't lose his temper at anybody anymore. And he did manage to prevail, beating, I think, a student from the University of Western Ontario by about 1,500 votes. Anyway, that was Bob Nixon. And may we have many, many more visits to come. And one more thing just before we leave you, uh, this being the On Poly podcast, we should take this opportunity to point out that uh, somebody who ran for provincial parliament, unsuccessfully, but ran nevertheless, and who was really part of the TVO family here for a very long time, she died this past week. I'm speaking of Noreen Virgin. Some of you will remember her from politics. She contested the seat of Hamilton East Stony Creek for the Liberals back in 2007. But John Michael, I got a feeling a lot of people are going to remember her as Jody in today's special because she was a pioneer she really was a pioneering presence on television way back when. Uh, yes, I think uh, it, if I can put this, people who are a bit closer to my age um, will uh, remember today's special. Uh, certainly, uh, that's uh, primarily uh, how I remember her. But, you know, she uh, did just a, a lot of really important work. Uh, as you say, she did uh, run uh, for uh, provincial politics. She also uh, had explored a, a federal run as well. Um, you know, just uh, sad to see a member of the TVO family pass. I think if people want to know more about this, I actually interviewed Noreen for the TVO at 50 podcast a few years ago. And I'm sure you can just put TVO at 50 wherever you get your podcast and you'll find it, an interview I did with her there. And, and she really spoke glowingly of TVO because – and remember, we're going back decades now. She may have been the first black woman in Ontario history to be on television in a regular weekly television program. And she was so impressed – at a time when you didn't see a lot of black faces on television, that TVO gave her a shot to host this program. So really a pioneer in that respect. And that is the On Poly podcast for this January 23rd, 2024. Remember to listen to the very end to find out what embarrassing comments JMM or I made before we actually started recording this podcast. You can follow our show on Apple Podcasts so you get notified each time a new episode is available. And if you already follow our show, help a friend follow it too. Any feedback, we are happy to hear it, good, bad, or indifferent. Write us an email at onpoliticsattvo.org. This week's episode was produced and edited by Matthew O'Mara. Our managing editor is Katie O'Connor. Production support from Christine Gardner and Jonathan Hallowell. Until next Tuesday, everybody, bye-bye. Bye-bye, everyone. Only the left headphone is working, John Michael. Okay. Left-handed, left-eared. Left-wing? I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> <laughs> See, you say we don't give you any material.